Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. Today, we talk with Sandy Metz on how object-oriented programming and agile development simplify design requirements, promote communication, and lead to better, faster, cost-effective software. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks, Josh. Happy to be here. So let's dive right in. What makes a language or an application's code object-oriented? This is a useless answer. It's written in a language that is object-oriented. Now, uh, that's such a specific technical thing that it may be almost useless, but it's a style of programming and a kind of programming language. And usually you hear people talk about object-oriented languages and programming in opposition to procedural languages and procedural programming. Okay, so that makes sense. So what precisely is a procedural programming language then? If you think of a to-do list or a recipe, that would be a procedure, right? You have a recipe, it has steps, one, you know, from the beginning all the way to the end. You, If you were to bake a cake, someone would give you a recipe and you would follow the steps from front to back and in the end you would hopefully produce a cake. Object-oriented programming is different from that in that, like if you were to imagine a long, complicated recipe, like with many hundreds of steps, like perhaps for a chemistry experiment, some of those steps, the individual steps might be quite complicated in their own right. And if you had more than one ongoing chemistry experiment that had a similar or identical step in it, you would have to duplicate that step in that recipe in both of the lists of things to do for those experiments. And you can imagine then if you wanted to change that step and had to go find it and change it in all the places, it would be a pain to keep the recipes all up to date. So a procedure is a as a long series of steps, if you took any one of those steps and extracted them into, like if you separated the step and you said, and you just referred to that new step, right? Use this step of each of these chemistry experiments uses the same step six. Then you, you start moving away from procedures into balls of reusable code. And then if you take one step further and you take those little elements of reusable code and make them sort of plump them up more and make them smarter so that they can actually control their own behavior, then they become objects. And so procedures are the most straightforward kind of thing, a long list where everything is done in order. Object-oriented systems tend to evolve toward just pools of interacting objects where the order of events is not nearly as clear, not as, certainly not from the outside. Okay, that makes sense. And so extracting these things into these objects, having these little pieces of reusable code makes it easier to comprehend the system or uh, what is that helping with? So it probably actually it makes it harder to comprehend the system sure. as a whole, right? So think of it this way. In the procedure, you always know if you're reading a recipe and you're on step five, it is always 100% clear what the next thing to do is because it's all written down, right? You can see step six and step seven. Converting from a procedural system to a more object-oriented system, you might have all of the steps might be independent entities and something has to happen to glue them all together so that they happen in the right order. And that part happens in memory when object-oriented systems run. You can't really tell necessarily what order events occur in by looking at the source code. So that's a that's a downside, right? When you have a lot of small objects that interact, the behavior of the whole is not obvious from looking at the parts. 
However, what you can do if you have a lot of objects is you can rearrange them in new and unexpected ways and reuse behavior that you already have that's well-tested, that is well-understood. And so it's a, it's a higher level of abstraction. The burden, there's definitely a higher burden of understanding placed on the programmers. But for that burden of understanding, what you get is this ability to get enormous new blobs of well-tested behavior for very little rearrangement of code. Okay, that makes sense. So just so I'm clear, just so I'm understanding exactly how this works, what it's sounding like when you're writing a procedural language, it's like you've got a book that you're reading cover to cover, right? You know precisely what order the next line is going to come in. But if you've got this object-oriented system where you're sort of jumping around, it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book then? Yeah. Where, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it, right? There are multiple paths through that choose-your-own-adventure book. And you can't tell by looking at the beginning of the book. Like, there's a piece of information missing, and that's the choice that you make at every step, right? That's not available in the Choose Your Own Adventure book to begin with. Right. And so if you if you look at the whole book, you don't really know how it works. You have to follow some path through it. Okay, so given that this seems more complex to handle for the programmer, what then is this object-oriented design that you're talking about? Obviously, we're not talking about the nice, uh, pretty images that designers are coming up with. What is this design? <laughs> yeah, design. Design is a, a, is a word that's so overloaded that it's almost meaningless, isn't it? Yes. So when I say object-oriented design, what I'm talking about is uh, how you choose to organize your code. And that means, how, well, I'll, like I'll just, I'm just going to list a bunch of questions, right? How sure. many objects do you have? How big are the objects? Are your objects really just secretly procedures in disguise? Did you just take a big, long recipe and you know, put a coat around it that you called an object, and such that the object is so big that you don't really get any effective reuse. It can only do the thing it does now. Or did you take a recipe and make a bunch of very small objects with very specific responsibilities such that you could easily rearrange them to use them in other contexts? Let me think if I can think of a useful example. Like perhaps you have an application that, well, here's one. So let's say you have a web app and it has to give, um, users might make errors on their input and you want to give them error messages. So if that were written in a procedural language, you might have the user request come in and there would be a, a long recipe that would check for every kind of error that might happen and it would generate whatever error message would go back for that and it would uh, send that back to the user. In an object-oriented system, what you might do is make an error message object that was responsible for handling that part. And so choosing whether or not to make an object to do that is a matter of design, what I call object-oriented design. And there are tons of decisions like that, how small and atomic a piece of behavior might be before it can justify being an, a useful object or an object that I might reuse in another context. You can see, even by this conversation, that you have to have, like, it's real. It's easy to go overboard and, quote, over-design an object-oriented system. It, it's as easy to over-design it and make many small objects that are so tiny and parsed in their behavior that they're confusing and useless. It's as easy to go overboard in that direction as it is to go, I'll say, underboard, right? You can make objects that do too much, which defeats the purpose of object-oriented programming. You can make objects that do too little or do the wrong kind of things, and they make your system confusing and difficult to understand, and they defeat the reusability purpose. 
when I think of design, I'm talking about how I arrange code, how do I choose objects so that the system is maximally understandable to programmers, maximally flexible so that I can get new behavior out of it, and doesn't do anything extra. You know, there's no level of indirection in there that adds confusion. Like, it's confusing enough, naturally, because it's objects instead of procedures. It is possible to make object-oriented systems that make a lot of sense and are easy to change, and that's a matter of how you arrange the code, and that's design. Okay, that makes sense. So when we're talking about doing this design then, are you saying that we should sit down before we start writing software and do a bunch of planning about how it is that we're going to tackle this? So how well does that work out, right? (laughs) No, not not at all. Yeah, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age, so I've been around, I've lived through it all. I've worked on large object-oriented applications that were designed over a period of a year in hotel rooms with you know, the customers, the product owners, uh, maybe consultants that were part of it. And my experience, my vast experience with sitting down in advance and just trying to uh, spec out all the behavior of a system is that it does not work. Not only that, it causes, okay, so it's a failure in terms of the software doing what the people who need the software want. But it also does another thing, which I think is even worse, and it's that it creates a kind of environment where the owners of products and the technical developers of products inevitably end up in opposition. They end up at loggerheads. And it's because you can't know. You can't know, right? Like if you make a whole big spec to begin with, it turns out that then then timelines get made around that spec. And the customer, whoever's asking for the software, cannot really know what they want. They're just guessing. And when timelines get made, then developers are held to those timelines. And their very strong tendency is to refuse change requests. So customers start, you know, they don't know what they want until they see the software, but there is no software to see. So they make a big spec and they throw it over the wall and the developers start writing software. And when they give it back, it becomes immediately apparent that it's not right. Now that we can see it, we know what we want. But if there's a whole big spec and a timeline, then there's uh, nobody want the developers especially do not want ch- to take change requests at that point because it'll make them late and they're often punished for it. You know, so I lived through the world that what we call that waterfall. That's the waterfall methodology, right? Where you there's a stream that flows to a big waterfall and then you make specs and then there's a the next step downstream where the application is written. The transition from that to the idea of agile which I don't know how much your how much your listeners know about. Can you how much do people know about agile, Josh? Should I say something about that? You know, I would think that people are at least familiar with the term, but they may not know precisely what it means. So, S- same with that and uh, lean. I think lean and agile these days tend to be used interchangeably, at least in the circles yeah, that I'm in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I would say, like, if I had to give a, you a cat a working definition of agile. I would say it's a new kind of bargain, newer, certainly newer than the old style bargain. It's a new bargain that says everybody who's involved in software development is in a boat together and no one can know what software should do until they see it. And the bargain that we have is we are going to be collaborators in this progress, in, in this operation. If things go well, we're in it together. If the boat has a hole in it, we're bailing together. You know, and one of the things that Agile says is that customers or product owners get to say what the product should do 
and that developers or the people who are writing the software get to say how long those things will take. And that's a really interesting bargain, right? It's not up to the developers to say what their customers want. They can't possibly know. They don't have enough information. But it's also not up to the people who want, who are defining features to specify, to dictate how long it's going to take to write that software. That knowledge, that expertise is in the domain of the developers. And so if you take those two ideas and you combine them with the idea that it is absolutely not possible to say what a software application really ought to do except as a result of an evolutionary process where you you write a little bit and you look at it and you make your change your ideas based on what you see like if you combine those three things what you get is working software produced by people who share the same goals and who get along the whole way and so i love that like i lived through the era and, okay it may still be a true statement that everyone hates developers. <laughs> it may still be true, right? I think but so. <laughs> I, de- I definitely lived in an era when everyone really hated developers because every software project was late. Not only it was late, and it did not meet the need. That's what Waterfall gave us, right? right. Schedules that could not be met and software that was unworkable for the customers. Now, at least with Agile, if we're willing to accept that no one knows what the software will do, and no one knows when, when the, the product will be done. And those are very tough bargains, right? You have to accept in advance that you don't really, you're not going to know what it's supposed to do till you see it. And because of that, there's no way to say authoritatively what the whole scope of the project will be or when it will be done. It, it's like these are truths, like we were just lying to ourselves before. <laughs> right. Right, but, it but was a lie. It is but it still was a hard, though. Lie. I mean, it, it is. is hard. It's a yeah, it's a punch it to the ego. It know? is very hard. I, I'm I'm with you. But so, like, then if we can accept that we we just don't know, and we're we were lying to ourselves when we pretended to know, right. then it gives us hope that we can collaboratively produce great software. And I've seen it happen. Like I have done it on this side of the agile divide. And so and I'm going to circle all the way back around to your initial question. Should we do all the design up front? We should do very little design up front because we don't know what the software should do until we work on it. But what it does not mean is that as ta- we, you know, as we figure out collaboratively, as all the people working on the software eventually figure out what it should do, then you have to arrange the code so that new features are easy to add, so that new developers who come to the project can understand it. Like, that's design, and it does happen, but it happens iteratively as software is developed. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to me, too. I'd, I hadn't noticed until maybe a week and a half ago, looking at your book, that the subtitle of your book is actually an Agile primer. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and really the practice that you're you're getting into in this is trying to get people to solve this problem precisely. So if we take a moment and we figure out we have something that needs to happen, we need to give something to customers, um, whatever application it is, how do we then determine what good software is if we're not sitting down and designing it up front? Well, okay. So good software. What is good software? Good software is software that keeps you in business, right? Good software is software that lets you adapt. It lets you win to the market to begin with and and lets you adapt because here's what happens. You win, and then you're in trouble, because very often the process of getting a product to market and staying in business involves writing a bunch of really bad code. Right. Right? 
bad from the developer's point of view, maybe not bad from the end user's point of view. Like it might, it might look great from the end user point of view, but as developers, we are back there throwing, you know, basically spaghetti. We're throwing pasta at the ceiling. Right. That's what we're doing, right? We're like, we have this big garage. This is, this is a metaphor I like the best, right? We have a huge garage. And you know, some people have incredibly neat garages where all the tools are up on pegboards and they got little outlines of the pliers, right? So you know where everything goes. And, but there's a lot of garages when you drive your car and you look in people's garages when they're open, there are a lot of garages that are just disasters. And that first, that you know, 1.0 product often looks like the worst garage you can imagine. And it has to, right? Because we're making decisions all along. We're not making decisions about the long term. We're trying to get product out the door. But there are interesting graphs that show this phenomenon, right? If you win, if you make it and win, often the software is so bad that it can't be changed. And the bigger the garage gets with a mess in it, the harder it is to go in there and find any one box or any one tool. And so there's this phenomenon where successful applications often grind to a halt in terms of the speed at which developers can add new features. And so I think of good software as software that produces the functions you need at the lowest possible cost. And the lowest possible cost might drive developers to write code that they are kind of embarrassed for people to look at early on, right? right. We'll write bad code because that's the right cost early on. But there comes a point where it switches and you have to go in and neaten up the garage in a little bit or you can't do the next thing. Right. And so good code is code that's good enough, right? Right. We're trying, we're trying to minimize costs. And early on, minimizing costs might involve code that's embarrassing. And, but later on, minimizing costs probably involves code that's a little better organized. Sure. And so... I mean, we're, we're doing this organization step. We're going back in and improving the code so that we can continue to move quickly at the pace the business demands. Is that yeah, what you're saying? Absolutely. Like you can, you can tell when your design is starting to cost you money because velocity slows down. Change, that's velocity as an agile term. The developers start saying, here's what happens, right? The product owners come in and they say, oh, we want this on this one page. We want this thing that's blue to, net, to be red now. Like they ask for a change that seems so minor that, and very often the, the change request is couched in these terms. It'll be really easy because you already have that. <laughs> right. right. That's what happens because it seems easy from the outside. And then the developers start throwing up their hands and saying, well, that's going to take me two weeks. And, and you get in the situation where there's this perceived, like it's, it's very frustrating for all the parties involved. The developers are really uncomfortable because they want to do good, right? They want to be quick and to satisfy requests instantly. The product owners are frustrated because at one point the developers were saying, oh yeah, I can make the blue thing green tomorrow with just one a change of code. And now they're saying, for no apparent reason, now they're saying, oh, that's going to take forever. And they sigh and roll their eyes and act put upon, right? right? <laughs> and, and that's, a, you know, those kinds of conversations at the you know, six-month mark or the one-year mark of a successful application are a sign of this disconnect when it's time to start investing time into needing. Because at some point, and it is, you know, if the project is, if the application is small enough to hold in your head, it does not matter how, how ugly the code is because someone can hold it in their head and go make a change. But it's, it's a size problem where the disorganization starts costing money and it's, Again, I mean, the garage metaphor is apt, right? If the garage is big enough, the cost of it being messy is high. If the garage is small enough, it doesn't matter where you put things because you can just go grab them, right? Right. So what you're uh, describing here sounds to me like technical debt then. Yeah, yeah that's a great term for it, right? right. So you want to 
Why don't, have you defined technical debt? Define technical debt for everybody. Uh, we've not defined technical debt. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in in my experience, technical debt is getting to the point where you have so much overwhelming work behind you. So, like you said, we've got this this mess of code at this point where, uh, you know, in my experience, we've got uh, maybe just to get things up quickly, I've got this like style sheet and I've thrown everything that I possibly can into this like app.css style sheet. And Mm -hmm. I really want to break this down into components. I want to start extending from other things and have components logically flow from one another. But at this point, that's not the case. Um, Mm -hmm. This is actually, this is uh, something that I have right now on a side project that I did where, you know, I don't have the time uh, to be going and trying to make everything perfect. My own requirements are I need to get this out to customers as quickly as I can. And Mm -hmm. so I've got this, this mass of like spaghetti code Mm -hmm. in styles that, need to be changed. Like I need to go back in at this point. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. It, is that, is that, uh, to- yeah, totally. And, and so here I'll, I'll come back to technical debt in a minute. I want to talk about your style sheet just for a second. <laughs> well, because here's the deal, right? Like every time you go make a change, every time you need a new change, it probably costs more than it would if it were neat. But the reason you haven't gone and committed the time to neatening up is that in the present, in that moment, when you're making that one change, even though it is harder than it should be, and, and maybe it's you know, five times as hard as it should be or even an order of magnitude harder than it should be, it's never really hard enough to justify going and fixing it. Right. Right? But if you add up, if you sum up all the times you pay a 10x cost instead of a 1x cost, at some point they do eclipse the cost of the whole, right, of fixing it. And so it can be very hard. So two things about that progression, right? One is that if you, it well, so uh, actually I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reset back to technical debt and then come to this. So my descript, my definition of technical debt, it's like a bank account, right? Debt is when you borrow in a way that you're eventually going to have to pay back. Right. That's what the metaphor is meant to imply, right? And it, you know, it's interesting. It was this terminology was developed by programmers, by developers, as a way to attempt to communicate about this problem to product owners. Because we're making decisions all the time. For example, your spreadsheet, right? You want to get... You know, you're, you're wearing both hats. You're wearing the product owner and the developer hat, right? So the product owner says, I want this new feature in my style style sheet. And you as a developer say, well, I could rearrange the whole style sheet and fix it, you know, fix everything and make it nice and neat and make change in the future easy. And that would take me hours today. Right. Or I could go spend 10 minutes instead of one and fix it in all the places, right? So you're making that deal. And, and so here's the deal about technical debt. Sometimes the loan never comes due. And then when the loan never comes due, then we should just write bad code. Right. right. Right? If the hat you're wearing, if your customer never asks for another change in your style sheet, the bet you placed that making a mess would be the cheapest way to do things paid off and you should do it. Right. And so that, so technical debt has, is definitely, the metaphor is right in the sense that it is a loan. But the metaphor is wrong in the sense that there's no guarantee that it's ever going to come due. And so part of the nice thing about technical debt, the nice thing about making a mess, is that you can make, like, I'm going to talk now about a specific kind of mess. Let's say I copy a bunch of code. I duplicate a bunch of code in a second place in my app in order to quickly get a feature out the door. Right. 
that implies the fact that there's duplication at all implies that, well, it ensures that if that logic changes, I'll have to find and change it in both places later. Right. And if I forget that, if I make a mistake later when the logic changes and only change it in one place, then I have a bug. And if I don't have good tests, I find out about that bug because the phone rings. Right. There's that. But here's the here's the deal. If I copy it and then no one ever asks for another change, it might be that that was the most cost efficient way to write software. Right. In addition, if I copy it once and then they ask for a third variant of it, waiting, holding out, resisting the urge to create abstractions, right? Resisting the urge to make a single place that that everybody uses means that the more cases I get, the better, I'm going to use this word, the better design information I get. The better, the more information I get, the longer I can hold out, the better information I get about how I should have arranged the software. We have a, a perfect example of this. So um, I'm working with uh, one of the guys on my team to do this pagination. Uh, uh-huh. We initially only were going to do pagination in one place. But then there was a second place where, you know what, it made sense to use this exact same piece of pagination. So, um, you know, at that point he asked me, should I just copy and paste it? Should I go ahead and try and extract it out? And I said, you know what, don't worry about it. Copy and paste it right now. It will be fine at this point. And then we had a third place come up where we needed to use pagination as well. And at that point, we started to say, you know what, there seems to be like the exact same requirements for every single one of these. And he's saying to me, you know, at this point, he is freaking out because he's, I'm going to have to go and change this, you know, in all three different places. And at that point, we said, okay, this is probably the the right point for you to, to figure out what these similarities are and write this, you know, abstracted piece of code uh, the way that you see fit. You know, figure out, you know, at this point what the requirements are. So write the code that you want to see. Yeah. Perfect, right? Like, again, all these decisions, I know as programmers, we want, you know, we love clever. We love cool. But really, we're stewards of the money that's being spent. And one of the thing, one of the ways, you know, very often we should be a little, uh, we should be more tolerant of concretion. Now, here, I'm going to use some words that may not make sense. So copying it both times is like two concrete instances of it. Taking uh, something that you think is the same and extracting it into a single reusable object would be creating an abstraction. But very often we, we're just, and, and human beings, we are such pattern matching creatures. It's, it's a thing that's really hardwired into the, you know, into us as a species. And so our tendency always is to make, to see patterns where none exist, to make up patterns. And so resisting the urge to create abstractions until there's really good evidence, which is often three or four, means that we can lower the cost of producing software in the near term while collecting the maximum amount of information before we actually do create an abstraction. And that's design, right? Right. That is object-oriented design. But it is hard. It's as easy to do too much as it is to do too little. Right. And I've I've seen developers to take, you know, very early, you know, they're just getting into object oriented design. Uh, They they take these sort of prescriptive rules to heart and then they get into seeing, you know, in in Rails, for example, there's controller code 
And there's a lot of what's called uh, incidental uh, duplication amongst mm-hmm. controller code. And they'll get warnings about this in their, you know, in whatever code quality software they have mm-hmm. that they're running against it that, oh, my God, all my controller code looks exactly the same. And so mm-hmm. they want to go in and start trying to clean it up and making extractions where none are necessary. So I, yes. I see that constantly. Mm. And, you know, that's a classic place, like Rails controllers, because, you know, that duplicate. The whole notion of duplication, you know, we learned uh, we learned as little junior baby programmers that duplication is bad, and it's true, it is, right? Duplication, like there are lot, there's lots of kinds of duplications that will be very costly, but then there's a ton of duplication, like duplication of concepts turns out to be costly in the long term. If you have a concept that's represented, the same concept is represented in a bunch of different places in your code, that's a recipe for disaster. Because that con- things about that concept are going to change, and you're not going to find all the places, and you're going to have bugs. But that thing, you used a great word to describe it, incidental duplication. Like, those controllers all look a little bit alike, but it, here's the question I always ask. Is that costing you money? The answer is no. Right. Like, just write it down. Just do it. All right. And so, it, you know, one thing, so let's talk a little bit about cargo culting and design. And so you just mentioned a thing, you said something like, well, people who maybe are new to object-oriented design and they run their code through a code code analysis tool, perhaps, and the code analysis tool complains about the design of their code and then they obediently try to go fix it. Here's the thing. There's two reasons why design might cost people money, right? One is that the clever senior person believes they can predict the future and they write code to meet requirements that do not yet exist. And that, that always turns out badly, right? That's never right. I, I used to be a clever senior person before I, and I threw away so much code. Like I, I finally got to where, yeah, I taught myself not to over-design things because I got tired of dealing with code that had complexity in it that was unnecessary for current requirements. And then eventually having to putting a lot of effort into writing things that were overly complex and then eventually throwing all that complexity away because it was just in the way. So that's one kind of over-design. It's the senior people that ought to know better. And they haven't quite gotten far enough along on their career to write simple code. But the other end of that spectrum of people maybe who don't do such great design are the kids who are new, who are just learning. And they tend to serially practice the latest technique they heard of. Right. Right? And, you know, we just have to be sympathetic to that. It's how you learn what's not really important by trying things out yourself. And I, I've thought and thought, you know, I mostly now I te- I write, I don't write so much code anymore. I teach other people about object-oriented design, so I teach classes. And what I see when I, you know, I go to the class on day one, I teach them about thing X, and on day two, they try to solve every problem with thing X. And on day three, that when I ask them, how are you going to do this? They'll say, a factory. We'll make a factory. Because <laughs> we had factories the day before. Right? Right. <laughs> and I work really, really, really hard at giving students a broad enough perspective so that every, it doesn't feel like they have a hammer, so every problem is a nail. But the truth is we, we can't really deny people. We learned that way. I learned that way. I did too much of everything I learned until I realized the situation in which it was right. And so I, I don't know. It, it feels like that. The best we can do is to help kids along and look at their code and say, well, so what do you think about this? Is there another way you could have done this? Like, Or ask the question, it seems like you use the observer pattern here. How's that working out for you? And then very often what they'll say is, oh, I hate it. 
Right. <laughs> like, well, why did you do it? I mean, they, they, I, there's a way in which people learn things and then they feel like they ought to do them, even if they are not yet experienced enough to know exactly how. And that, that I don't know, just you just have to write code for a while. Experience will cure it. I'm now I'm trying now I'm going back and trying to think about does that matter at all to product owners? I, I mean, if you're like holistically in a shop that has a, an application, if you have a bunch of bright, interested in newbies, you probably have scary design things in your code because they're trying, right? They're trying to do their best, and and if if it's a collaborative environment and there's support for doing the right thing, and especially ongoing training then eventually they'll get smart enough to take all that code out. Sure, absolutely. It's it's the best we can say, right? So, so, I mean, let's say that you are a product owner, right? And you've got Mm -hmm. these developers. Is there any takeaway for me on what they, like you mentioned patterns, and we we talked Mm -hmm. a little bit about some of these prescriptive things. Are there rules that programmers should try and follow then? I have given people rules about object-oriented code, but the the real rule is that your team ought to have a bargain about how to write object-oriented code, and everybody on the team ought to follow that bargain. That's the biggest rule, right? Now, I as someone who has, has spent a lot of time thinking about object-oriented design, I ha- I'm very biased towards small methods, small objects. I'm very biased toward and comfortable with very single responsibility objects that interact very fluidly. That is a thing that experience makes one comfortable with, and I completely recognize that there are plenty of OO programmers who are not yet that experienced. And so one can make, you know, there's a whole continuum of rules about how code should look or how code should be designed. I don't think any of those rules are more important than having a team that has a bargain about how their code should look that everybody follows. It ought to they ought to have a style guide. You ought not be able to look at code and know who wrote it. The code should be intention revealing, easy to understand, and follow the agreed upon conventions of the place. That's the best way to lower the cost of software. And if you have folks that won't are unwilling to get on board with a team, then they probably don't want that job. Right. So, right? so why is it important then that everybody follows that bargain? I mean, what happens when somebody goes and, and breaks so, it? So, you know, I'm, I'm working on a book now, and I was thinking this morning about how to explain a thing. And I, and I realized that, like, writing a book, the writing that one does when writing a book is for other people. And that code is exactly the same. And, and it was an interesting idea to me, right? Code is written. I mean, we know that code is read many more times than it is written. Right. Well, actually, you know, I, I think that a lot of people don't realize that. When I talk to people who, you know, are non-technical, they assume that I'm spending the majority of my day typing on a keyboard. Oh, yeah, that's okay. So let's talk about that a little bit. That's not what happens at all. <laughs> Mostly what we do is we look at code. That, we change code that already exists. We make minor changes in existing code. That is the vast majority of our work. And so then if, if you can accept that as a truth – then what we do is we read other people's code all day long. And then if you accept that as a truth, what it means is the primary cost of developing software is understanding code that other people wrote. And if that's true, then it really, really matters that that code be understandable. We want to optimize, not for cleverness, not for coolness, not for speed in the present, because speed in the present often undermines speed in the future. Right. 
All right. That's what we're talking about here. We it, the code is written for other the the primary thing that happens with code is that other people read it long after we all forgot why we wrote it. And so if there's not a, an agreed upon style or convention, if everybody can do whatever kind of indenting or whatever kind of you know, they can choose that any of the technical elements that are available to them. It means every time I look at any code in my shop, I have to go figure out a whole different mindset. It's it's as if the book is written in many, many different actual languages. And so sometimes I open a file to make a change and it's in Greek and I got to go learn Greek. And then other times I open a file and it's in Portuguese and I got to go learn Portuguese, right? What, what we want is a bargain about that language that makes it all be English or whatever language we're using. And, you know, there's a big ramp up time in sorting out differences in style. And it, it is completely a waste of money. Like that can go away if you have a team that wants to work together. It means having a team where you have a way to negotiate differences of opinion about what that style should look like and come to an agreement, which can be a tough thing. Right. Absolutely. So if I am a non-technical person, a you know project manager, a founder, a designer, what can I do to help make the developers' lives easier? How do I make them, or how do I help them, rather, uh, write better code? Is there anything I can do? I look at the code I wrote five years ago, and I think, wow, that sucks. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? right? It's really common. And, and, and when you think about that, what it means is it's a wonderful thing because it means we've learned something. And you know, there's a joke among developers about 10 years of experience, right? There's a joke that says, he doesn't have 10 years of experience. He has one year of experience 10 times. <laughs> right. Okay. And that guy is not a guy who looks at his code from five years ago. He or she does not look at that code and say, wow, that sucks. Right. They're as content today with old code as they were when they wrote it. If it's true, so this is one of the few businesses on the planet where we can get better every day and produce higher quality code at lower cost if we learn. But learning means being in an environment where a premium is placed on learning. And that means believing that, you know, bringing beers in on Friday afternoon and having a brown bag where somebody talks about code smells is going to pay off. Right. That culture of continuous learning, like if there's so much time pressure that nobody learns anything, then code will be costly forever. The inverse of that is if there's a culture of learning and it's got to come from the top, then everybody will get better. They'll all look at the code they used to wrote. They're, they'll look at their old code regularly and say, wow, that was terrible. We could do that so much more cheaply now, efficiently now. And then code will get better and better. So the best thing is to make an environment where no one is a star and everyone learns, right. which is a cool thing. I, and I, you know, now I, get, I, get, I go out a lot now because I basically do training courses. And so I see all kinds of environments. And it's very interesting in, to me that there's a vast difference in the kinds of efficient collaborations that happen in businesses. Uh, like it's, a, there's an amazing range of how much support there is for continuous learning and how good the code is and how effective the programmers are. And what I know is that it's possible to do a very good job 
in this realm, but it takes intention from the very top. The people who make decisions about money have to decide that this is a priority, but when they do, they get amazing software out. They get happy staff that stay, who continually learn, and they get that software that does miracles, really. It's possible. Right, absolutely. I mean, I've heard this time and time again, but people don't leave companies, people leave managers, so the managers (laughs) absolutely need to reinforce this. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, organizations reflect their management and it goes from the top all the way down to the bottom. I mean, I won't name any names here, but one of the most impressive places I've been in the last two years is a business that uh, is incredibly successful. They've got tons of VC money, which they cannot spend because they're making so much money. They never need to get into the VC cash. The director of engineering is a guy who started out 10 years ago there in He was answering the phones. He was doing like support phone calls. And he's now the director of engineering. They've like homegrown this entire staff because of this incredible commitment that they have towards supporting and nurturing talent. And they're amazing. And I've been, you know, the other end of the spectrum, I'm in places where they have also tons of money, but they have very competitive environments. And the lack of collaboration was noticeable and it's harming their software. Right. So caring and getting along and taking care of each other is it's just, you know it's no different than any other human endeavor. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, and don't let nerdly programmers tell you any different, right? Exactly. Like, like having people who can get along is more important than having people who think they're stars, and having the people who everybody feel like they're on the same team is more important than whatever arbitrary divisions there seem to be between sort of the people who deal with the customers and know what the software should do and the people who behind the walls who write it. Like those walls ought to break down. That 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 is one whole team and making it a whole team is how you produce really good software. Absolutely. As we wrap up here, is there any last takeaway that you would have for somebody from this? I know we've learned a lot here, but uh, just any one thing that you'd want to leave somebody with. You know, it's funny. It feels like we've already sort of ended with it, right? It's that it's more important to work together than it is to be a hero. That's how you get things done. And it's hard. And, you know, I used to be clever. I I wanted to be clever. It was really important for me to be clever. And then I had to pay the consequence of that. It's so much better to be to humbly do your best and be public about your need to collaborate with other people. That the fact that collaboration improves our output. And so I don't know. See, here I'm stumbling around. Working together is more important than being an individual star. And environments that support that idea do really well and make great software. So I would say go do that. Absolutely. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for being on with us today. Can you tell us where we can keep up with you online? I am, my website is sandymetz.com, S-A-N-D-I-M-E-T-Z. Pretty much everything I'm doing is on there. There's also a mailing list there that one could subscribe to if they wanted like more details in, a, in form of a newsletter. Okay, absolutely. And you said that you also uh, do classes on object-oriented design? Yeah, I teach the occasional public course. Mostly there are private courses, and that's also on my website. Anybody that would be interested in a course you can easily find it. There's a courses tab. So there's a way to get in touch with me about to get more details about that. Okay, excellent. And well, in my opinion, if you're actually taking Sandy's advice here, and investing in your organization, I would probably recommend that you do that. So uh, thanks so much. That was very, <laughs> that never occurred to me that you were going to say that, but I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much again. And it was great having you on. Josh, I appreciate it. Best of luck to you. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.